You are now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Raiders Pictures Edition. And today, we are talking about the utmost of the Raiders Pictures, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Indeed. Or Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, as it's sometimes called in various nowadays nowadays but i think it was released as just raiders of the lost ark yeah and that's cool i actually wish they all like raiders of the lost ark temple of doom the last crusade these are cool pulp titles that i think kind of lose out having indiana jones in them i don't know what's that last one called crystal kingdom of the crystal skull kingdom of the crystal skull well there wasn't much saving that I don't know. I, I feel like maybe when we get there, I should try and figure out how to be an apologist for that movie. But I think it's going to be pretty difficult because mm-hmm. it's not good. Yeah. Hard to, hard to make space for bad things. I would love to be the guy who told you why you were all wrong about Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. But I think you might have been right about it. So that'll be difficult to do. All right, Jake. We're talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark, 1981's classic adventure film. Arguably the best action adventure movie ever made i'll throw my money behind that i'm ready to go all in you want to put anything else in the running like is there anything that you think might be better i think we actually mentioned last time mad max fury road is right up there action wise but in terms of compelling likable characters (laughs) not so much batting a zero (laughs) i can't i can't imagine what i would want to put in that class like if i just want to sit down and enjoy a truly fun movie. I don't know. It's like, it's comfort food. It's, it's kind of just perfect. I just don't know what fits the bill as well. Uh, there's no Marvel movie that touches it, right? Like there's no superhero movie that touches it. Really, you're just in the world of Spielberg and Lucas mm-hmm. to, comp- you, to draw on. And it's the best of all of them. Yeah, I mean, who wants, you know, Saturday, lazy Saturday afternoon. I'd much rather turn this on than ET. As much as I love right. ET, like or Close Encounters, or or Jaws, or any of the other Indiana Jones movies, mm-hmm. or it's, any Star Wars film. It's a pretty perfect movie. Okay, let's talk. I, I suppose. Okay, there's all kinds of things we want to talk about today, but maybe the first thing we should do, since we spent a lot of time in our introduction to Indiana Jones, talking about the evolution of the action hero. Maybe we should talk a little bit more about where we see Indiana Jones actually being on that continuum. Who is Indiana Jones and what kind of a hero is he? Would you, in fact, call him a hero? Do you want to make an argument that he's not? That he's an anti-hero? That he's... He's definitely not the straight-ahead superhero. He's just not... He's not super-powered and he's not straight-ahead. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he's he's that classic. He's the embodiment of the classic American anti-hero. Right. And we're going to see that throughout the whole movie. Everything from the way he plays sideways to the material, to the way that he cocks his hat, to the way that everything just sort of feels like, oh, here we go again, and he's going to have to take a beating mm-hmm. and going to come out doing on top, having done the right thing and taken a beating for it. Well, I was reading Roger Ebert's review, written back in 81, like just responding to the movie as it came out. And he said, what elevates this movie uh, ahead of almost anything in its genre that's come before is, I think he used the word droll. It's droll take on the characters. And I think that's about right. I think droll is actually a really good word for the way this movie looks at its hero. Like, it's not making fun of him. It's not Chris Pratt in Guardians where it's like, this guy's a doofus. It's not, this guy's awesome, like John Wayne or some of the heroes that came before. It's not 
this guy is awesome, but he's a wreck like Humphrey Bogart and Casablanca. Like he needs to be redeemed. It's this guy's awesome, but also he's just like, like John Wayne is never going to get smashed in the chin with a mirror when a woman is trying to make love to him. That doesn't happen to John Wayne. It doesn't happen to Humphrey Bogart. I don't know who it would have happened to. But Indiana Jones, unlike, say, Chris Pratt in Guardians of the Galaxy, doesn't lose his dignity. Right, yeah. He, it's it's somehow, he can take that hit, and it's really just Marion's fault. <laughs> yeah, it's Marion's fault. Like, Indiana Jones himself is pretty smart and competent. He happens to be surrounded by people. Who screw him over all yeah. the time. Like, all his, like that was actually a thing. I mean, it's Marion, that's definitely. Marcus Brody. Marcus Brody. It's the Sala. girl. The girl in the second, in Indiana yeah. in, uh, Jones, Temple of Doom, yeah. is you know they they leaned into that in a way that a lot of people think is pretty unlikable i'm i'm not I'm, i haven't decided where i'm going to land on that yet yeah i think i think even though the character is unlikable Kate capshaw still does a pretty fun job of she does her best i think with with an annoying character pretty annoying but she's kate capshaw is working her tail off to try and make that character work and make it bring the same kind of droll perspective to the character maybe it was a fool's anyway we can talk about that next time but yeah, Indiana Jones, what I think is, there's a couple of things about Indiana Jones. Number one, Harrison Ford has a relationship with the audience that, at least in this time period, transcends whatever character he's playing. Yeah, He's vulnerable. He does two things. We talked about this before. He plays sideways to the material. Like somehow he just brings a slightly sarcastic quality. Like he knows it's silly. He's in on the joke. He's smirking at it with you. Right. Like, oh, I can't believe another thing just happened to me. This is ridiculous. Who gets in this much trouble? That's kind of the Indiana Jones attitude about everything, which is not the attitude, again, that John Wayne would have in a similar predicted predicament or Humphrey Bogart or one of these characters. But he's also really vulnerable when he gets hit. You know, if you prick him, he bleeds. If he... There's a part where I think the key to understanding Indiana Harrison Ford and Indiana Jones likability is Cepito drops the whip, runs off. Indiana Jones takes a flying leap across the chasm in the opening scene. He catches the vine. He catches the vine, and then he has then a the big vine slips. The, the, well, it's two things. He has a big. He has a big grin on his face. Just allow. Just Harrison Ford's instinct to allow his character to be so happy that against all odds he got it. It's little human things like that that Harrison Ford, I think, just does without thinking that really bring that character to life. Like when he's going to swap right before that, when he's going to swap out the thing, like he's sweating and he's stroking his chin and yeah. then he's really relieved when it seems to work. And then he's really scared when it doesn't work. And it's just like there's a level of human engagement. He'll play Indiana Jones when he's trading banter with Marion. He'll play Indiana Jones when he's punching out a Nazi, but in those in-between moments, you just see vulnerable Harrison Ford kind of being himself, just reacting to a situation the way that a real person would react to a ridiculous supercharged situation. And it just brings a lot of humor and pathos to the character. And I don't know what other hero I would say does the same thing. I mean, you think about even a Daniel Craig type James Bond, he's always, you prick him, he bleeds, but he's also cool and ironic and above it all at the same time. Yeah, he's definitely above it. I mean, You you think about Jason Bourne, maybe he'll be slightly surprised that he has these powers as he discovers them. But also, he's just a superhero. Right. Like, 
I don't even know. And then, well, I guess probably the place. So Stan Lee and the Marvel movies are always going to be the place where you're going to get your most human characters because that was what yeah. Stan Lee brought to the. So Spider Man is really just in terms of a character, the character that's most in line with Indiana Jones. Yeah, Spider Man's like scared and concerned and in over his head and going to get beat to pieces, but because he has superpowers, is going to be able to take big blows and keep getting back up on his feet. Yeah. Over the course of the MCU, Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man plays that same kind of role too. Mm-hmm. But oh, even there with both of those guys, they're always a good deal smarter than anyone that they happen to be up against, generally speaking. Like if Spider-Man's up against thugs, at least he'll be able to out-equip them. Yeah. Same thing with Tony Stark. They generally, ultimately have the jump on people. One way or another, even when they don't feel like they do, they sort of naturally do because they're so smart. Indiana Jones really gives you the impression that sometimes, yeah, he's smart, he's ingenious, he thinks his way out of situations and he punches his way out of situations, but he also just gets lucky. He's not superpower. He's not way more intelligent than all of his foes. He's just the guy that's going to take two seconds to think, I can't actually shoot this guy, but if I shoot the logs, the logs will fall and right. and hit him. And then I'll be able to shoot him. He's it's those kinds of puzzles that Indiana Jones can solve in the moment that the Nazi bad guys don't think to. And most people wouldn't think. And most to. think, yeah, it makes it does make him smarter and more heroic. Yeah, and more awesome. But should we give? I guess everybody knows the story, right? George Lucas is escaping from Star Wars. Star Wars success goes to the beach with his buddy Steven Spielberg, who's taking a couple of weeks off from Close Encounters. And they're just lounging on the beach somewhere, hiding out. George Lucas or Steven Spielberg says, I've always wanted to do James Bond. They won't let me. They won't let me. And George Lucas says, I've got something better than James Bond. I came up with this years ago. It's based on the old pulp serials. It's called Indiana Smith. Explains the concept. Globetrotting archaeologist. Spielberg says, I love that. Hate the name. Lucas just in the moment says, well, how about Indiana Jones? There it is. The rest is history. Yep. They get together with Lawrence Kasdan and pitch a million ideas, some of which didn't make it into this one, but things like the minecar chase and the Shanghai showdown and stuff made it into the next Mm -hmm. one. And you can actually watch, you can find on YouTube videos of the three of them, you know, like old footage that they took of the three of them just spitballing. And the thing that you will see, I think I said this on our other Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark review, is you will see George Lucas just spinning pure gold and the other guys just trying to keep up. keep up. You'll see Steven Spielberg come up with dumb ideas that never made it in, which is fine. Everybody comes up with dumb ideas in these yep. kinds of meetings. But what you will see is that George Lucas, for all his craziness and inability to direct actors and inability to write dialogue, is he is the ideas. He's guy. the idea guy. He is great at coming up with scenarios and bits of business and concepts for how these kinds of things work. And he's just like super no-holds-barred ambitious. He told Spielberg on the beach, I've got three of these already planned. You got to sign on for three. And then later Spielberg figured out that George Lucas had no idea what he wanted (laughs) to do for the other two. (laughs) And they had to figure that out. (laughs) But George Lucas is the kind of guy that's going to say, oh, yeah, I have three of these. And there's a whole backstory. And George Lucas just likes playing with his toys in the sandbox, I think. 
Anything else we need to do, or can we just talk through this guy? I think we should talk through the guy. All right. What do you think about the opening credits and all that good stuff, Jake? It's such good stage setting. Yeah, it's wonderful. You've got creepy music, and you're working through the jungle, and you're only seeing bits and pieces, a shadow, a whip, uh, you know, until you get to the point where you finally realize you've got the fearless white man. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Surrounded by the cowering natives. (laughs) Surrounded by the cowering natives, yeah. It is, it just... I can be such a grumpy old man talking about this. Movies today so often throw away the first 10 minutes of their movie and throw away the introductions to their major characters. Like, there he is. Yep. It's like, no, give him an introduction. Like, we're going to see Indiana Jones from the back. He's going to be silhouetted against that mountain. We're going to have these guys following him. He's going to just- He's got a bullwhip for some reason. He's got a bullwhip. He's got to go. He's going to- we're gonna, still not going to see his face. He's going to prick the dart, test it, and then throw it down like it doesn't matter. The other guys yep. are going to come up and be trepidatious about it. Provide some commentary on it. Yeah. Oh, poison. Oh, three days. Oh. And those other guys do a lot of work just by being scared and normal of making Indiana Jones. Seem pretty seem chill and heroic. Really chill and heroic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If they knew we were here, we'd already be dead. Mm-hmm. He's going to keep on going forward without pausing. Yep. For a movie that moves so fast, it's all about setup and payoff. Payoff, yeah. But it's not actually just for a movie that's famous for inventing the cinema of just payoff after payoff after payoff after payoff. Does the work of the setup. It actually does the work of the setup. And it turns out the punchlines are better when you have a little time to build up to them. Yep. And it's really cool when the guy pulls the gun and Indiana Jones whirls around and his whip comes out and like okay now we know everything we need to know about about this guy and i think the first dialogue he actually says is this is it this is where forestall cast cashed in (laughs) was he a friend of yours senor competitor he was good he was very very good which is all set up for (laughs) forestall yep See how far you made it, buddy. See, that's how, and Forrestal was the best. He was the best. And therefore, our guy's the best of the best. A couple other observations about this scene. It's stupid. Like, this is out of, Spielberg explicitly said that this all came from Scrooge McDuck comics of his childhood. The idea of these temples that had these booby traps. Like, it's amazing how straight-faced they're able to play this ridiculous concept. Did you know? I just learned a thing. What's that? Which is that Scrooge McDuck is a comic that predates Indiana Jones. Yeah, I, it is. I, I've never read it, but I guess I was I, I was aware that it was a thing. I love DuckTales mm-hmm. because of how Indiana Jonesy it is. Yeah, well, Indiana Jones actually is Scrooge McDuck stole from DuckTales, which stole from the pulp serials, and so yeah, they're all drawing yeah. from the same sources. But yeah, but yeah. Yeah, but the idea of ancient traps was something that Spielberg really latched onto in his boyhood DuckTales, Scrooge McDuck comics. And it's such a dumb concept. Like, it doesn't, don't go into the light. Why is I know, that, why I is know, that a thing? The dumbest thing ever. I, I love to make fun of that. And 
I think I insisted on making it a joke in a he manologian sketch or something like that. Yep. Which is only available at patreon.com forward slash sound or yeah, sound of sanity, because that's where we have some additional sketches that never actually saw the light of day, <laughs> including the, the, the <laughs> famous he manologians jungle adventure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, what, how does, how does the, how does the light, how does a shadow set off a boot? It doesn't. No. It's just not possible, except in this world somehow. Yeah, and these natives apparently created these traps with great Rube Goldberg technology thousands of years ago. That And they're still preserved and functioning and there aren't dead animals lying around. And Well, and so it's interesting. I think a modern movie, the way that they make something like that work is actually a little different. The way that J.J. Abrams makes something like that work in Rise of Skywalker is he goes through it really fast. Like right. we all know traps usually don't work, but in this case they do. Like a character says something like that mm-hmm. and then we're supposed to accept that traps work. The way that a Marvel movie makes it work is a character gives some meta comment like traps <laughs> a thousand years and then suddenly that guy gets an axe in the face or something right. like that. Yeah. And it's like, ho, ho, ho. These I guess, things don't really work that way. Oh, I guess they do. Yeah. As, I mean, Guardians actually has that explicit reference to the... And, and they play it back in uh, in game. Mm-hmm. Twice we have the the idol on the on the altar right. gag. Twice and the gag is that's uh, not how these things work. Right? No, like gonna have Don Cheadle be like, shouldn't be be worried about booby traps. No, it's not how this works. And then it is how it works. Indiana Jones actually solves the problem differently by just playing it really straight and not commenting on it at all. It's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't matter that it's dumb. Like, you know, you've got great music. Yeah. You've got this slow paced stuff. None of it has to make sense. The light trap doesn't have to make sense. The fact that the temple is somehow set up to collapse. Indiana Jones is going to like have to be so careful to not step on all of these things or he's going to get poison darts in him. Or he could just run really fast across. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The idea that at some point, some kind of architectural engineer got a giant boulder, set up the giant boulder, got like 20 guys to roll the giant boulder yeah. into place and have some Hold kind of there. trap ready to spring. Yep. It's going to trap you in the temple. Yeah. Yeah. But it works perfectly because they just, they refuse to acknowledge it and they, they give it time to sort of breathe and for you they to- They almost insist on, of course, it's stupid. Or it's of course it seems stupid to you. You don't understand these people or the or the thing that's happening here. Yeah, that's like that's why having that long trek through the jungle with with characters being sweaty and scared, it does a lot to like we've already built it up in our minds so that when yeah. this when this crazy stuff starts happening, we're ready to accept it. You watch something like National Treasure and it's like they want to hurry to get to that stuff and it doesn't read as half as it feels like they're just making stuff up and throwing it at you. Oh, the Constitution, this, but uh, I'm like, no, I don't really buy that. But Indiana Jones, you never even think about it because yeah. they've done the work of drawing you into the world mm-hmm. degree by degree until they're ready to spring their silly traps on you and you're just already invested yeah. along for the ride. And we're going to build up to it with steps like we're going to do cobwebs and then spiders Yep, and then a gate, which seems kind of plausible, I guess, and then poison darts, and then a collapsing room with a triggered by a dropping boulder, a dropping boulder with an idol. It's like we don't get to all the silly stuff 
first. We build up to to a crescendo of silliness. And then our great amazing hero comes tumbling out, falls face down into or face up into a bunch of spears and then mm-hmm. he has to it's you know, we learn something else about him. Drat foiled again by my old nemesis Bella who old... lets me do the dirty work and then robs me of the the treasure. Well, and I always think that Spielberg and Lucas are hit and miss on their adult irony. A lot of the sex politics and stuff in this movie is a big miss. But the sly political commentary of having the dirty Frenchman who's in cahoots <laughs> with the Nazis <laughs> is really great. He's <laughs> just using their money to get what he wants. Yeah, right? and they'll never take advantage of the situation. Yeah. That's a lot of fun and something for adults to appreciate that and will we're go pre- over kids' we're, we're pre-World War II at this point. So the Nazis are still ascending. Yeah, that's another smart idea. Yeah. If you want to appreciate why people say Spielberg's such a great director, you can appreciate the way that he uses his camera, the the way yeah. to the way to kind of appreciate the thing to notice about Spielberg is that he'll get a lot done in the space of one shot with a moving camera, whereas a lot of people today just get what they call coverage. They just get different angles and they cut them together. But Spielberg will come up with elegant solutions. A good example of that is Indiana Jones jumps out, he rolls down, and then we have a shot of the natives. We have several shots of the natives, and then we have a wide shot of the natives. We pan over to the guy standing there. The guy flops down with the darts in him, and then Bellic walks into frame walks over to Indiana Jones and kneels down. So you've got a whole bunch of information and the power dynamics of who's in charge and what's going on and where the threat's coming from and the geography of which direction Indiana Jones needs to run. Yep, it's all there. It actually makes sense when Bellic holds up the idol and the guys bow down. I mean, that's a stupid conceit. Everyone's so distracted that Indiana Jones can just run away. What is this? Looney Tunes, but <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> but they've set up the geography in a way that it reads as plausible. At least, yeah, it really does. It really does. Like in, in you almost like you want to set up in ways that you want to make excuses for it. Like we don't know anything about this Aboriginal tribe of whoever's mm-hmm. the Vitos. You could warn them if you only if only you spoke Vitos. Oh uh, yeah, well we know their name. Yeah, okay. Well, okay, we know that much. But we know that they, you know, one way or another, how Belloc got control of them had something to do with probably this idol. Mm-hmm. You can manufacture all kinds of reasons why he would feel like he needed to, at that moment, hold up the idol mm-hmm. and say, we've done it, we've got it. Right. And then they bow and, you know, whatever. Like, there's just enough mystique that goes into goes into everything that's led to this point and the way that it's all just so subtly framed and worked mm-hmm. that from a big picture scale, yeah, okay, it's it's pretty lame and stupid in Looney Tunes that, yeah, he would raise up the idol and then they'd all be distracted and they'd all be positioned in such a way that he would have a clear path of escape. But mm-hmm. but yeah, it really just, it works and you you make reasons for it in your head that you, you just don't think about. Well, and there again, there's like, when we're trekking through the jungle at the beginning, we're going to come across the dart. We're going to establish poison darts. Yeah. It's going to do good work of just making this jungle seem like a scary place, but it's also going to enhance the threat and tell us what the threat is when suddenly they're coming after Indiana Jones with poison darts. And it's just, there's there's nothing particularly profound about that, but this movie is just full of 
simple little things like that mm-hmm. moments that are both providing payoff in one sense and set up in another sense and doing double duty and you don't necessarily take them all you know you don't think about it that way as you watch but it makes for a pleasurable movie experience because you always know where you are and you know what the threat is and you know what the problem is that indiana jones has to solve and you're scared and and then they're always setting up the next thing Mm -hmm. at every step along the way they're setting up the next thing so you he's running down start the engine what and the guy just got a fish this movie is so generous with its ideas like even just a throwaway joke like he's gonna jock just he just finally got a tug on his line and now now Indiana <laughs> Jones comes it. running up. That's great. And he's got to like, you know, quickly process, I have to let go of my fish and Indiana's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get that taste of the heroic music for the very, very first time mm-hmm. and we get our theme and it's awesome. And but then we don't even get the relief because suddenly we look down and what's there on the floor basically in Indy's lap. And he's terrified of snakes. And the guy says, show a little backbone, which is a great punchline to the entire sequence. A wonderful way to end the scene. That could be the end of anything to do with snakes in the movie. And it would be a perfect moment for that scene. But it's also setting up. Everything with snakes has come down, comes down the road. Yeah. And so it is just that like it works completely in and of itself. But it's also a setup for another payoff. And that's what this movie's always doing. Mm-hmm. And it's the kind of thing that you, I really appreciate. It is what I think the genius of J.K. Rowling is. Yes, yes, like, I agree. It is finding elegant ways to set things up, to, to have setups that feel like they are absolutely just intrinsic to the thing that's happening at the moment. Yeah. What we're not going to do is have Indiana Jones in the classroom be like, now you guys all know I really hate snakes. Exactly. And I, I sure hope I never see a snake because they're scary. We're going to have a moment that feels completely inevitable with snakes and also sets up the entire middle act of our movie. And this movie's just full of stuff like that. And it's really, really clever and well-written. And we're setting up the relationship between the hero and the main villain. I mean, that's something yeah. that James Bond movies usually didn't do in their they they do now because people, you know, the James Bond producers have learned from Indiana Jones. These things are reciprocal and cyclical, but to actually do a lot of work that's going to pay off in terms of the main plot like this is the bad guy this is the relationship that he has with indiana jones this is why they don't like each other this is how he treats indiana jones mm-hmm. we're already setting up the fact that he's not unlike indiana jones that he's just yep. a shadowy reflection of yourself so we go then from indiana jones man of action to indiana jones professor professor man of science and this is where we see the difference between Lucas's conception of Indiana Jones and Spielberg's conception of Indiana Jones, because George Lucas was always very insistent on Indiana Jones has to be the new James Bond, which means he's going to have a different girl in every movie and girls in general are going to think that he's awesome. Yeah. So here we, so we go from, you know, that action and power to Mm. brains. And then, yeah, we get that class, the now classic love, you or whatever. The, I love you. Mm-hmm. I love you. Yeah. 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 Uh, thing, which again is telling us a lot about Indiana Jones mm-hmm. or who we think who Indiana Jones is supposed to be. And it's also, guess what? It's another setup 
for everything with him and Marion, which is going to come later, and what his relationship to Marion must have been. Indiana Jones is the kind of person, he's a man of action, he's brilliant, he's got the, the power, he's got the brains, and the girls in his college classroom are throwing themselves at him. Which does, it, it's, 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 I'm not talking morally, right? What, what it does morally is pretty wicked, actually. But it's clever because what it actually does is it makes a lot of sympathy for Indiana Jones exactly. when we find out. What we find out, because especially the way he responds when the girl does I love you, he's flummoxed by it. Right. Which is a human reaction. And what it, what it basically tells you in a little moment is that hot young ladies throw themselves at Indiana Jones and he just kind of. He has to deal with that. He has to deal it's with like, it. It's like part of his curse. It's part of his curse. It's his cross to bear. <laughs> so then that tells you that what actually happened with Marion was that, I mean, she says, I was young, I was in love, I was stupid or something like that. Yeah. That's not the exact line. but And he says you knew what you were doing. Right. And we imagine that no matter how young she was, which given Karen, Karen Allen, the way she looks in the movie, she was pretty young. It's uncomfortable. But you get the idea. Marion was the one that actually threw herself at Indiana Jones. Now she's Just mad like at him. like any number of other girls have. Right. He didn't say no. Yeah. But it subtly flips it so that Indiana Jones doesn't actually feel like the predator that he, in fact, was right. in that situation. He's allowed, in our minds, off the hook in a way that is a little slimy for them to do, but is clever and works. Yeah, it makes room for the character to... I mean, the real we, solution would be just leave that stupid plot point. But if you really want to put in that kind of plot point, then what you do is you you make it possible. Mm -hmm. You you give all kinds of ways for people to make excuses for themselves. Well, I suppose this is as good a time as any to talk a little bit about the sex politics of this thing. I think when you look at Amblin Entertainment and Spielberg and Lucas, you have to understand them as, especially during this time period, as being angry young men who are coming out of the 60s swinging James Bond and then flower power. What you basically have is these guys grew up with a very promiscuous and uh, submissive idea of what a woman is. And then they suddenly had to deal with 80s women. Mm -hmm. And so there's this weird clash of ideals going on here. Yeah. What they want to do is make space for the fact that their hero can still be a Lothario, but also it's kind of complicated and the women are. Brash and, brash and empowered in a certain way. Yeah. And it's all pretty gross. Like, it's one of the things that's the most off-putting about the Indiana Jones movies. It happens in the other movie, you know, with the lady that sleeps with Indiana's dad. I'm sure we'll mm -hmm. talk more about that. Ilsa. Ilsa. It's like they're always going to have something like that. Well, Indiana Jones just is just a regular guy like James Bond that likes the ladies. But then these ladies are more complicated and it creates yeah. these awkward... And using him in the case of Ilsa, right? Like, yeah. And I just always feel like Spielberg and Lucas are giggling when they do stuff like that. It just feels like they get a kick out of it. It's, yeah. it's one of the least likable things about the movies. Like, it's just it's well, just kind of a sick joke what happened yeah. with Marianne. And At the end of the day, part of the joke is, well, it doesn't matter how empowered you are. Right. You got nothing on Indy. He's going he's gonna to get you. Yeah, I think that's what feels sick about it. It's actually, in a weird, sneaky way, reasserting the same old James Bond formula. No matter how brash the women are, eventually, Indiana you're Jones. You're going to be tamed. You're going to be tamed. He carries that bull up around for a yep. reason. But he never has to actually. But the fantasy element of it is where 
a 1960s guy, screenwriter is going to have Jane, uh, John Wayne just spank Marina O'Hara, like actually tame her. Indiana Jones just tames her by, by being himself. Yeah. Like he doesn't actually have to That'd do anything. Awesome. He just shows up and the woman will eventually end up throwing herself at him, which yep. is kind of a lot grosser than the old John <laughs> Wayne. <laughs> yeah. As dumb as the old John Wayne thing was. <sighs> All right. Uh, what else do you want to say about the professor scene we're also laying in the fact that indiana jones doesn't believe in folklore yeah that, i mean that's what mo- it sort of moves to next so you've got the brains you've got the intellect and then you have like the skepticism mm-hmm. is what is where we move next we do get that i was interested and i think it's worth pointing out the idea that everything indy does is for the museum that really gets played with in last crusade yeah really is here mm-hmm. it's not as big of a deal in in raiders as it is in it belongs in a museum. All that stuff is. Well, they say two things in this movie that do a lot. Marcus, when he first shows up, says, I know everything you do corresponds to the international treaty of whatever. Right. And, and that that guy's a great actor. He's able to put just the right spin on a line uh-huh. of dialogue like that. And then the guy says, how does one say it? Obtainer of rare artifacts. Yeah. And so. It tells you everything about the professor of archaeology, expert of the occult, and obtainer of rare artifacts. How does one? But how does one say it? Actually, does a lot of work. It's like this guy, Indiana Jones, is a little dubious. He's a little. Yeah, he he crosses lines. He's on the gray side of the law, and yeah, but he's altruistic because it's all for the museum. It's all for the museum. He's all procuring things for the museum. Things these things belong in museums. Right where they're, and he's going to make a big deal about. He's going to go on this Ark of the Covenant adventure. So long as the museum gets the Ark in the end. Mm-hmm. They're going to pay him handsomely, big deal, whatever. He's going to be sure that the museum gets the Ark. And yeah, here we have Indy the skeptic. Yeah. The Would- cynical, jaded, sort of, what is the line I think I... He, yeah, he's asking, in the museum, the museum gets it when we're finished? What are you trying to do, scare me? All this magical hocus pocus mm-hmm. boogeyman stuff. Well, they give him a number. They give him like six or seven line. You know, Sunday school. D- didn't you, didn't you guys ever go to Sunday school? He says things like that. He says, um, "Power of God." If you believe in that sort of thing, right? Like, they they just keep laying it in. Yep. They also begin to bring in their themes, mm-hmm. the musical the, themes. Even yeah, they yeah. bring in the arc theme, um, which is just a tremendous piece of. Oh man. He opens the pic- he opens so the book to the picture of the Israelites holding the ark with the light beam coming out of it. Yeah. John Williams puts that theme lays that theme in really gently and it gives me chills. It's yeah. like you already just feel this this weight of ancient religious mystical power. Mystical fear fearsome like scary. The music does so much to, you know. I we should say that if people want more in depth a more in-depth look at the score they should listen to art of the score art of the score Raiders of the Lost it is Ark. a podcast that you can find it and it's wonderful their their piece on raiders uh, on raiders and and they 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 posit something that i was very much looking for and i think we talked about this some on our uh valuation of just scores in general uh, for sound of sanity mm-hmm. they posit that um normally the they don't quite put it this way the score is usually from the perspective of the director and therefore the audience. Right. This is how everybody wants you to see. This is the God's eye view of, you know, uh, of things. And the music is telling you 
how Providence looks at, how the universe looks at what's happening on Captain screen. America may or may not think that Captain America is heroic, but Captain America's theme tells you, doggone it, Captain America is, is heroic. heroic. Exactly. That is the objective truth of this movie in this universe. Yeah. What they argue is that the score is actually from Indiana Jones's perspective. Mm. The whole score is actually from Indiana Jones's perspective. It's not that Indiana Jones is heroic. It's that he thinks he's being heroic when his heroic theme pops on. Mm -hmm. And it's not that Marion is this sweet, lovely thing or there's any real like sweet romance here. It's just the way that Indy views and looks at Marion. Mm -hmm. It's Indy's sentiments. And the reason that I was, I'm bringing this up now is because there's this moment when, all right, they've had their meeting with the Americans, the CIA or whatever. And now Marcus has come over to Indy's house and they're talking about it. And he's like, I'm going. And then he stops and says, thinks she'll, she, he's got to go find uh, her, Ravenwood. Yeah. Professor Ravenwood. Mm. And he has this, thinks she'll be with him. And then Marion's music comes on. Yeah. Or Princess Leia's music. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) The other point that they make in that podcast is that George Lucas has a very specific, uh, what's the word? I'm not a musician, but- John Williams. uh, Sorry, sorry. uh, John Williams. The chord structure that he likes to use for his romantic themes is pretty much always the same. And they're all beautiful, but they all- Sound alike. Sound alike. Yeah. Man, this movie, this whole section is such a slap in the face of J.J. Abrams and his stupid, like, it's the MacGuffin. We just have to find the MacGuffin. It doesn't matter what it is. Like- we are going to spend so much time talking Building about up the lore and the yeah, and even having Indiana Jones say, "Come on, guys, the lore isn't that important." That tells in movie terms because we've all seen a story before. We know somebody saying that means it's very important. It's very important, yeah. <laughs> well, and then you got Marcus Brody there being like, you know, he's a man, very clearly a man of the world, mm-hmm. as cynical as anybody, and then he he's sort of like. You know, Indy, the arc's kind of in a different class of things. Right. Indy's response is going to be, you know how careful I am, and pulls out his gun. And throws it into the suitcase, yeah. Yeah, but still, like, they really toy with it and tease it, and the music does too, and again, that's just great setup work. Yeah. Well, Hero, Marcus Brody's a great character. I really like his comic turn in Last Crusade. I'm sure any kid that grew up with that oh, movie yeah. loves it. but. Being the father figure who can bring a little bit of uh, gravity to this stuff goes a really long way just in this opening section. Like Marcus is the person that we can key off of actually to know how we should feel about the arc, how we should feel about all of this stuff. Marcus obviously has the right perspective on our hero, on what our hero is capable of, on what he's – Indiana Jones is just going to kind of bluster forward and he's going to be excited. But Marcus is like – Marcus, you can give Marcus lines like – an army that held the ark might well nigh be invisible or invisible, invisible, invisible. yeah, not invisible, yeah. invincible. We, we just know as an audience, because this guy has innate dignity. We're that's, not keying off of Indiana Jones. Stake, yeah. We're not keying off of the dumb American bureaucrats. We're keying off of Marcus. And so we know what's at stake here is Hitler and the Nazis getting access to invincible power. The invincible power. Yep. I just watched National Treasure. So it's, it's so, Within the last couple of months, my wife wanted to watch it. I will add. It's so apparent. I just, none of that stuff is believable. And it's not that anything about the way that they set up all the clues in the Constitution and stuff is that much more silly than Indiana Jones. But they just, they don't spend time with it. They don't let it breathe. They don't lay it in slowly Mm -hmm. and build up to it. And so it just, 
it just seems kind of silly. You're going to immediately have a big info dump about what do you call them? Masons and all yeah. this stuff at the very beginning. And it's like, you kind of have to, you have to work up to it by degrees, guys. You have to take your time. And you really could, once you br- decide to bring the Masons into it, mm-hmm. you really do have the potential to to make all that silliness seem plausible or fun or to really make it land, I guess. Yeah. Well, and having a hero, it's important that Indiana Jones, for storytelling terms, if nothing else, it's important that Indiana Jones be a skeptic because- the hero needs to be the one that says the things that we would all be thinking. The hero ha- needs to be like, ah, there's no supernatural. That gives us an anchor in reality. And then the hero can slowly be convinced and we can be convinced with him yep. that there is the supernatural. But having the hero like a national treasure be the the crazy guy that's convinced that everything's connected, connected, and- like that's a much, there's a way to make that work, but that's a much harder starting point than to have Indiana Jones always approach things with some skeptics. It's why, even given that Indiana Jones apparently always goes on adventures and discovers new supernatural artifacts and never once has something proved to just be the work of man, it's why he needs to start every movie somehow conveniently forgetting that and saying it's just a bunch of hocus pocus. Uh, Okay, anything else to say about the expository section of the movie? Nope. Travel scene, baby. Travel scene's awesome. I love his travel suit. I love that men had to wear suits on airplanes, and he wears his fedora in his suit, which is a great 1930s look. Gets offered a cocktail. Everything about the air travel is fun. The classic pulp line across the map. Love it. Love it. Love the fact that we're just going to put a random agent looking over his Life magazine (laughs) at Indiana Jones just to add some. I don't think that that guy ever... That's an example of something that doesn't really pay off at all, but it's just like... If we can, we might as well make this scene have I some mean, mystery. If, and, if it pays and off at all, it's because he led the Nazis to Ravenwood. Yeah, I guess that's the implication. That would be the that the only implication you could draw from it. And then we are going to meet Marion in a movie full of implausibilities. The scene that always seems the most implausible to me. She's going to drink this giant. Yeah, she's going to drink him under this American broad. will drink anybody under the table and smash liquor bottles over their head and shoot them in the back and what do you think about marianne and karen allen in general i guess this is the the place for talking about her i will start by saying i really hated her as a kid i hated her as a kid Indy, the snakes like as screechy as the temple of doom lady seems marianne has a lot of screechy she does and she's just like she doesn't like our hero and she's like she's not on board with him and she's kind of making fun of him and yeah marianne lois lane all these tough, broad kind of. Yeah, I hated it as a kid. You hate it now, though. Felt super off-putting as a kid. I, I don't hate it as much. I kind of in watching it this time. I liked. I, I don't like the conception of the character, and I don't like uh, those qualities. Are, I still find off-putting. Like, who would want to be with this person? I don't. Right. You know, I'm glad my wife doesn't act like that. You know, uh, but who? What I do like is Karen Allen. Because Karen Allen seems like she's just, I don't even know that she's that great of an actress, but it seems like she's having fun. Mm -hmm. When she smiles, it seems like she really thinks that it's funny. Like, she just feels like she's happy to be there. Feels like she likes Harrison Ford. Feels like she knows she's lucky to be in this movie. And that kind of energy, whatever else you want to say about the character and about the performance, both of which I think you could criticize, just having someone who looks like they enjoy being there and are throwing themselves into the stunts and the running around and the 
you know, like when the later on when the monkey's on her shoulder right. and that's it's, the, it's our child. Yeah, and that's the scene I was thinking of. He's got that's your brains. He's, he's smart, smart little thing. You know, it's yeah. like, I don't know that I like this person, but I'm glad that she's here to play and she she's likable in that sense. But we do get all the awkward sex politics. I was a child. I was in love. Yeah. I did what I did. You don't have to be happy about it, but maybe we can maybe we can help each other out. What also works about that movie, that scene? Indiana Jones. I always knew someday you'd come walking back through my door. The silhouette there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another great... That's You're a, sorry. Everybody's sorry. Yeah. That stuff's... I mean, Kasdan knows how to write a 1940s style witty banter scene. You know, like a Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman style tough guy meeting the tough girl kind of scene. And it works. They, I think another thing that kind of saves it from feeling more icky than it does is that they both kind of feel like they're play acting. Harrison Ford definitely doesn't take that aspect of his character all that seriously. The movie kind of doesn't take it that seriously. We're not going to spend a lot of time. Like we're not expected to actually emotionally invest all that much in the idea that he betrayed this young woman and ran off. It's just, it's just scenery as much as anything. It's, it's the kind of thing that characters in these pulp stories say to each other. It's not yeah, and while they're having this little spat, the, he's going to bring up the arc. Mm-hmm. A mysterious wind is going to blow yep. and the candle's <laughs> going to flicker. And yeah. so we we feel that whatever human things we're playing at here, there's a bigger story and a bigger hand at work in all of this. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's just, it's more atmospherics. It's more of a backdrop to the- Ben Crow, like I assume it was. To, to the- you know, to the real story that's being told. And, and we're about to introduce the Nazis. Yeah. Man, this guy. The, what uh, a great stereotypical. <laughs> I love him so much. In a movie full of great villains, he is. He's so good. A wonderful villain. Um, when he pulls out the, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, mm-hmm. but what a great setup for him pulling out, uh, like the implication of, we have our ways and mm. I'm going to torture you and we have a guy and all this stuff. And then he pulls out the thing and he turns it into a hanger. The coat hanger. Yeah, that's the best. That's probably the best visual gag in the movie. <laughs> so I mean, good. it'd be between that and the the sword, the famous swordsman and the marksman scene. Yeah. But man, the coat hanger is great. <laughs> it's so good. Well, and oh, what did she say? She says we're closed. And then he's his delivery of we are <laughs> not thirsty yeah. is I mean I'm not even gonna try and do it but <laughs> it's like so good the door opens John Williams hits those two ba bum 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 chords and he walks in with this big grin on his face and oh man only in Indiana Jones can you get away with that kind of stuff yeah. and again we're not gonna comment on it we're not gonna be I mean I like Marvel movies I like meta humor but we're just gonna. Play it. Our tongue is firmly in our cheek. We're being ironic, but we don't feel the need to to wink to wink all- at you all the time. <laughs> this is all one big wink, right? Yeah, it's just one wink. <laughs> it's not forty winks. Uh, uh, yeah, so just have this With guy. The fact that we made this movie—that's the wink. Yeah, that's the wink, and that's all you need. the The funniest way to do it, in fact, is to just play all this material as straight as you possibly can. And so to have this Nazi torturer walk in, chuckling to himself. Yep. And to build to the crescendo of, you know, I'll tell you everything. Yes, I know you will. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, he's so sadistic because he's ready to like make a deal with her. Mm-hmm. 
for more money than she could possibly hope. Yeah. When she refuses, he threatens torture. She's ready to cave instantly. And he's like, nope, too late. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to permanently deform your face. <laughs> Probably yeah. take out your eye. <laughs> oh, man. It's he's... like, it's like I, I was told to do this. And if it came to torture... I got us to torture as quickly as we could, and now I've got my plausible deniability. And yeah, this is just what a great character. And you want to talk about Spielberg's great camera work. When those guys come in, we have a shot where we just see their shadows on the wall, and then the camera moves down to Karen Allen looking very small with these shadows. Yeah, which is what that's the that's one of Spielberg's favorite tricks. Yeah, is you see uh, your character see and understand and we'll talk about it the basket scenes mm-hmm. are the, the other really great example of this but we see it all in their face before we pan and see what they're actually yeah and that saying. builds anticipation yeah there's a famous uh story like an anecdote of of orson wells saying the best part he ever played was on stage and it was a character named mr Wu. and you know they asked orson wells what was so great about this part and there wasn't anything great about it there wasn't any great dialogue mr Wu didn't necessarily have great scenes but the thing about mr Wu is that through the entire first act of the play people were talking about mr Wu and what's mr Wu gonna think when he gets here and what will mr Wu say about this and then you know at the end of the last of the first act mr Wu shows up and orson welles point was by that time the audience was ready to accept anything, anything yep. and, and they were going to think that mr Wu was the most powerful interesting charismatic character because we'd spent all this time and that's spielberg does it in shot construction like before we showed the wonderful thing we'll show somebody reacting to how wonderful it is yep and that sort of thing goes a long way towards selling the wonder of we, we are conditioned to key off of our fellow human beings that's how god made us and when you see a human being reacting to something we're gonna we're gonna see uh belloc's face light up Mm -hmm. you know when suddenly something starts happening inside the ark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, first we're going to see everybody's disappointment, and then we're going to see them pull out the sand, and then we're going to see their faces light up before we cut to see the mist and the fo- and the blue light. And then we're going to watch their faces react in horror. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's all the things that people will criticize Spielberg because his tricks are simple. You know, it is shot, reverse shot. It is point of view shot followed by face looking at thing or it is giant shadows looming over yeah and people feel like they need to that it's so ham-fisted or cliche that they need to not do that sort of thing but no i mean just do the thing that works guys well it's like we can't all be shakespeare so but if we cut and we're careful we a lot of us can actually be Ernest hemingway in a weird way you know i'm not saying we can all not a perfect metaphor but Steven Spielberg has tricks that he learned from old movies and he's not afraid to use them and he yeah. has he he uses them tastefully and smartly and uh, you know it's better than someone being too good to to actually put elbow grease into their composition because when people are too good for it what they end up doing is they end up get a bunch of coverage and you yeah you cut it together and yeah it's you, when you're afraid to 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 make those kinds of moves then you end up being lazy in your composition and you just get coverage mm mm-hmm. mhm and well, and what Spielberg and the shots don't do the work of telling, and you've not really constructed them. Yeah, and you're not at that point. You're not taking advantage of the medium, the power of the camera. Yeah, 
it's not that easy to bad examples tend to just kind of wash over you. It's just another moment in a movie. So it's not that easy to actually think of a, a classic bad example of, I don't know, like we just talked about fellowship of the ring not too long ago. Yeah. Think about what they could have done with the introduction to the Balrog. Like you could have had everything from our character's point of view. And I I don't know what, I mean, just imagine the Balrog. Just no, just imagine, imagine Raiders of the Lost Ark vibe Mm -hmm. in the minds of Moria. Take everything about the temple scene. Mm -hmm. Take everything about the well of souls. Take everything about, that arc scene, the vibes, the shots, the anticipation, all that stuff. And now let's take all of that into the minds of Moria. Right. Spielberg would spend time setting up like we're in this dark place. It feels clammy. It feels, we feel caught. The drums would be like, uh. And he would be just as economical as Peter Jackson. I don't think the scene would be longer, but it's just that it would be very effectively layered and building to something. Uh, okay, now we're going into the fight that I always think of as the diehard fight because it's the fight that is just as violent as any diehard movie and tends to take parents by surprise when they decide to show this children's movie to their kids. To kids? Yeah, I'm. I was surprised by it. I mean, it's blood coming out of people's mouths. It's bloody bullet hits. It's yep. People getting hit with wood and John Williams, they make the interesting choice of not scoring it, which all makes it seem a lot more intense intense and less fun mm-hmm. than, I mean, I, I guess if he's going to make an argument for it, let's put the most violent fight up front. There's, there's an argument to be made for that's how you do it. Like, this is the most intense we're willing to be. And so now you're kind of scared the whole rest of the movie that we might get back to that, mm-hmm. even though we never actually do although even the quote-unquote fun scenes are pretty violent and well we got some jump scares with skeletons and things like that corpses that are pretty Mm -hmm. gross and scary and the snakes and stuff but i mean i know that you're thinking of the plane scene when you say violent but yeah the helicopter scene and the truck chase they have violent moments they're not as overall yeah i think that the they do violence without being as violent they do horror without being as gory moving forward until you start exploding faces. Until you start exploding faces, which is how this movie ever got a PG. I just shows the clout that Lucas and Spielberg, because that's always been a political. I mean, it's one of the the least, the least, it's one of those things that Hollywood barely bothers to be hypocritical about. Like, yeah. if you're Steven Spielberg, you can get a PG where somebody who's not Spiel- Steven Spielberg is going to get a R. And that's the thing with all these movies, parents need to remember is there was no PG-13. No, there wasn't. And so when you look back and you're like, oh, PG, and then you have something that's got innuendo and foul language and lots of gore and stuff in it, that's just... Speaking of which, just a random thought, the thing that actually bothers me the most about these movies, and it's in all Amblin Entertainment from the era, they really make a point of blaspheming. Yeah. And it's just, it's really obnoxious. Yep. And it feels... To me, I I don't think that Hollywood, I think there's a lot of wicked people working in Hollywood that do a lot of wicked things. I don't generally think there's a cabal of evil Hollywood executives getting together to ruin America. But when they make this this conscientious of a choice to always include people saying GD or Jesus's name, it feels malicious to me. Yeah. It feels like it's aggressive. Spielberg has a chip on his shoulder about Christians. 
and just wants to kind of wallow in. Wants to defile us all. That's I mean, it's what it feels like. It's it's actually funny that they put the moment where Indiana Jones gets smacked for saying a blasphemy and uh, Last Crusade. Last Crusade, yeah. I don't know what they were trying to say with that, but they certainly don't have a problem with it, especially for a movie that's going to build to the entire point being. You don't mess with this stuff. You don't mess with this stuff. It's muddle-headed messaging to have our heroes always being so cavalier about it. Yep. Not that they probably gave it that much thought one way or another, but it's really striking. It's something that you don't run into as much in, say, a Marvel movie or PG-13 is actually a tamer category than PG was then. Yep. They have rules like you can't just show blood. Like you're not going to see gunfire make squibs explode on people's chests in a PG-13 movie generally now, Mm -hmm. whereas back then they're just doing that in their PG movie as a... As a matter of course, uh, this, this, this action scene is a good action scene just to see how they construct action scenes. It's a series of gags. It's a series of problems. It's a series of action and reaction. We've already been talking about this a lot. We'll keep mm-hmm. saying it, but it's like Indiana Jones. Like I said earlier, he sees the guy. We know the geography. We know he needs to solve this problem. We know he just can't put a bullet in the guy. Indiana Jones looks. We follow his gaze. We see the logs. He shoots the logs. The logs come down, the guy lights on fire, then Indiana Jones. It's a series of things like that, which really serves to draw you into the action scene a lot more than, I'll just pick on Lord of the Rings since we already picked on it. Like, it's action. They're just, they're doing things. Actiony things are happening. Right. Aragorn's running around. Legolas is doing things. It's like, let's actually set up, this is the problem that Legolas needs to solve. Then let's have him solve it. And that just tends to and draw us in. And while we're solving that, let's set up another problem for Gimli while we move to paying off an Aragorn problem that... Yeah. We had already set up over here and then boom, then we can move to the payoff for Gimli and then we've got all these setups and payoffs happening where it functions sort of like, I mean, really a good action scene is just a, is just an elegant Rube Goldberg yeah. machine. Yeah. It's right? like a puzzle. Yeah. It's a puzzle. It's a Rube Goldberg machine. It's dominoes. It's all kinds of stuff like that where you're going to see something in an early shot that somebody's going to pick up and smash over somebody else's head. Mm-hmm. Right. The whiskey's going to pour out on the bar, and eventually it's going to get lit on fire. He's going to ask for whiskey. She's going to hand it to him. He's going to hit the guy. I mean, yeah, yeah, all that sort of thing. It's a Indiana Jones is going to be fighting the guy, and then the evil shoot them both. Shoot them both. Yeah, and then they're going to find it in themselves to aim the gun and save their own lives. Yep. Before they go back at it. Before they go back at it again. Yeah, I mean, I I don't just want to keep saying the same kind of thing, but it is. And it's not that like a Marvel movie will never have a moment where this happens. It's, it tends to just be like action, 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 and then something like that, kind of to to punch line to pivot right. the scene or to give it a punch line. Tony's fighting. He's fighting. He's fighting. Oh, he needs to save Pepper over here. It'll be that kind of thing. Right. Whereas Indiana Jones and any great action movie, Mad Max Fury Road, for all its furiousness, it's like. Max is on the thing. He sees the problem. He sees the motorcycle coming. He has to do something. He has to get the bullets. It's a series of problems that have to be solved. Yep. Bad guy burns his hand. That's a wonderful plot point. I've always loved that. The fact that we're going to spend the next chunk of the movie wondering how the Nazis found the Well of Souls or the the map room, actually. And it's because He he burned his hand. And it's also why they didn't find the Well of Souls. Because there was a backside to the... That's a perfect plot point in that it feels so natural in the movie and it must have taken them days to crack it, crack it 
Uh, all right, are we ready to go, go to go to Cairo? I think so. Let's jump on the plane again. Dun, 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 dun. Mash it up with the Marion theme. You a uh, Sola fan? You like uh, Sola's awesome. John Reese Davis, yeah. yeah. Gimli. Gimli. <laughs> Let's go, Gimli. Yeah, he gets to play the same character and everything. Um, I like him. I like uh, him too. Okay, good. Yeah, no, I like. I him. was afraid that you were gonna tell me that you did, and I was just gonna be like, you know what? No, he's great. It's one of the problems with Temple of Doom and with the uh, the new one is that Indiana Jones just doesn't just have a fun, life loving sidekick like Sola. Yeah, Sola is. Great. And he gets to do the Peter Jackson, George Lucas thing. You know, Cairo, never will you find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. <laughs> exactly. <or> whatever <laughs> he actually says there. What I kept thinking about is when they're on that rooftop and they're just doing exposition in front of all the city. Yeah. Like they had to remove TV antennas and stuff. They didn't have computers to just like paint that stuff out or to make a fake background. Like, yeah. To have a big vista like that and to make it period appropriate would have been. Huh. Days of work, permits, working yeah. with the, the sultan of the area. I don't know what political system Cairo had, but yeah. it's like there's so much more elbow grease that goes into a period movie or, or any kind of world building at this time than there is now. And then they immediately set up the monkey and his dude. Yeah, yeah. The monkey's great. And they set up dates. Again, this is just like they're always weaving in and they make it all a part of, you know, Indian Marion, mm-hmm. their dates, you eat them. Well, and, and what was the point of the dates? It's not that Spielberg and Lucas were so excited, I submit to you, about a dates poison storyline. It's not one of the really interesting things about the movie, but what they're eventually going to do is they're going to have a big exposition, exposition dump where Indy and Sola are trying to figure out where the Well of Souls is or something like that. I don't even remember. Yeah. And if we can have Indiana Jones tossing a date in the air the whole time during that scene... We can add a ton of suspense and interest to right. to the whole scene yeah. and everything around it. And so we set it up. We've got the monkey. We've got the monkey's man. The monkey's attracted to her for some reason. Mm-hmm. We don't understand why. Indy's eating dates. He thinks dates are great. He's so happy to be in a place where he can get fresh dates. They're dates. You yeah, eat dates. them. You eat them. <laughs> one, of the, one of Harrison Ford's <laughs> most charming line deliveries. <laughs> <laughs> and, and all of that's working in the context of this sort of like, lover's tension you know immediately mm. and the monkey plays in and the dates play it all plays in mm. but it's all setting up just little things like yeah we want to add tension to this later scene yeah and the monkey's gonna run back this is the just the the generosity of this movie most movies you don't spend time and you don't take you don't take the time and have the cheeky sense of humor to have the monkey zeke Kyle. so right there right, that's exactly. that's that's fun and that's something but then the guy zeke Kyle's back yeah. And is embarrassed about it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> how can we milk the maximum amount of <laughs> entertainment value out of this conceit? And this movie's just full of little things like yeah. that. I love the guy Zeke Heiling back, and then he fucking kind of has this look on his face so like, oh. This with the monkey. <laughs> just this with the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then you get, like, that the commentary on it, like, stupid trained monkeys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's all that you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stupid train monkeys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, this movie is it's just pound for pound. This is the, a movie that's the most dense with great ideas. I mean, just compare it to even your favorite Marvel movie, and it's like one good idea per 10 minutes or something like that. Maybe two or three good ideas for 10 minutes, but this movie is just like- 100% good ideas. Yeah, two or three good ideas per per minute. I mean, I don't know what the math is, but it's like 
and this good idea leads to this good idea and this good idea. Always set setups and payoffs. The only movie that I know that I think is as dense in entertainment value is Casablanca. And with Casablanca, it's just the density of the dialogue. Right. The way that the characters are bouncing off of each other and all yeah, the colorful. That, I keep wanting to compare this to Casablanca too. My mind keeps going there and I keep trying to put my finger on why. And I think the answer really is Raiders does with action what Casablanca did with dialogue. And mm. that's just the way to think about it. Like Casablanca is kind of the perfect movie when it comes to that old dialogue driven. Yeah. You know, more stage bound kind of a story. Stage bound story, and and Raiders is the perfect analog for an action movie, and they all sit around the same kind of hero, right? And the same kind of story. The Nazi is going to ask Rick, "Are you? Uh, what's your nationality?" And he's going to say, "A drunkard." And we're not going to stop there because we can then have the police captain <laughs> say, "That makes Rick a citizen of the world." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's that level of like. What's the most that we can mine out of this? Yeah, that I just love because it—it's not that they're just geniuses. It is that they're geniuses. They were on fire in right. both cases. They got lucky and they were on fire. But also, they're putting in a lot of work to figure out how to make this stuff play for maximum effect. These things just don't don't just happen. They feel like they just happen. Mm -hmm. They feel inevitable to the audience member. But I mean, this is part of the point of this whole show that we do is to stop and say absolutely every moment of everything you see in one of these films was a decision. Mm -hmm. It was made. It was something that somebody chose to do. It's not passive. Yeah. And so- You need to judge it that way. That's, you, it needs to be judged that way. It needs to be appreciated that way. Uh, okay. Now we're going to get to the basket, Chase. Boy is uh, George, or George, George Williams. Boy John. is Boy is John Williams going to switch- the tone on us <laughs> from that last action scene. Stop, bump, bump. <laughs> and what's interesting is that this scene's pretty violent. The Arabs are accidentally stabbing each other. Yeah. And there's like impalings and shootings and it's not half as violent as the bar scene, but it's still pretty violent. Yeah. And John Williams is just going to be like, nope. It's comedy. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great. It's great that they figured out how to do a different kind of an action scene. I don't know what else to really say about the... It's just one more set piece that yeah. who would think to do that kind of a set piece mm -hmm. in the middle of at the start of their second act this is the action set piece that you're going to do is you're going to be running around cairo and mm -hmm. in and out of baskets and well and one thing that you can say about even the best of the born movies or the marvel movies is like when we get to the action scene it always has a very specific kind of a flavor and now we're in action scene land whereas this movie it's like no 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 action no, scene Seems the same, feels the same. Right. Yeah. The the one in the bar is the dark, gritty, violent, diehard one. This one's the lighthearted one. The chase is going to be the breastless chase scene. The yep. first thing is going to be the mysterious temple scene. And yep. they're not shot the same and they don't feel the same. And the music's not doing the same thing. And it has variety. Yeah. And that's the spice of a movie like this. I think this is also, you know, people will often... I don't want to say people will often, but people have asked me before, like, okay, you don't like feminist warrior women, so what do you think a woman should be doing in an action movie? I actually like what they do with Marion in the scene and that she's not a damsel in distress. She's smart. She can think on her feet. She's doing what she can. She's also not super powered in a way that a woman generally wouldn't be. Right. Like, she's doing, she's, it's not that she's. Her most super powered moment is when she 
bashes the dude over the head with this skillet. Yeah, and we're going to take pains to make this guy laugh like an, a moron before and you know he follows her into the she's dark. Gonna, she's going to grab the skillet and or frying pan or whatever it is and turn around and he's going to laugh and pull a sword and she's going to be like, right, run, turn the corner and it's fun. Yeah, it's fun and I don't like the sex politics of this movie in general. I don't like Marion that much but I think that's a pretty smart way to just use the woman character in a scene like this. Like she's doing what she can. We're not, she doesn't just need to hold the hero's hand the whole time because Marion would not in fact need to do that. The fact that she is a woman, the fact that she's built differently, the fact that she is weaker is a plot point that helps. Like she has to hide. She can't, if Marion can just Kung Fu these guys, it removes a lot of the suspense of the scene. No, she's got to find other ways out. Yeah. And that's the suspense and that's real drama. Yeah. And that's the drama that people would feel in a real situation. And it helps that then we have our one character, our hero, Indiana Jones, who can kind of kung fu these guys. And he's got to make it to Marianne and save her. And like it adds, it it just makes for an actual scene instead of we're just both beating everybody up and the bad guys can't touch us. One thing that the Indiana Jones movies understand in general is that the bad guys need to be on top of the situation a lot of the time. You can't, so many action scenes in modern movies is like, now's the time when the good guys are awesome and they just kick the crap out of the bad guys. Yeah, no, a Marvel movie, if we replace every one of these set pieces with a Marvel set piece, what we would have is something that had to be scored with Indy's heroic theme yeah. every single time. And then we would, we would just run it all into the ground. It would all feel boring and tired and old by the time we got to the final cinematic payoff and it would it would feel much more like we were in a michael bay movie yep and somewhere in the second act or uh, at the end of the second act indiana jones would have to lose because the plot would absolutely require it at that point and it'd be like why he never loses he's just right. losing here because because we need him to we need to actually have some sense of payoff for at the actual climax of this film yeah we need to put him up in a tree and throw rocks at him that's how storytelling works before he comes down but it makes a lot more sense if he's only hanging on by the skin of his teeth the whole time yep uh, okay we got the famous sword gag i guess everybody yep. everybody knows that harrison ford was sick that day and couldn't do the big action scene and on the fly they just came up with let's do this and it's every kid's favorite part of the movie um well deserved well deserved pretty funny does play into what we talked about in our guardians of the galaxy thing where yeah Indiana Jones is pretty indiscriminate in who he kills. Who he kills. Although this guy was waving a sword and was going to come and cut off his head. Well, movies used to be much better. Even the Indiana Jones movies are much better about setting up the situation in such a way that it feels inevitable. Your modern Fast and Furious movie, it doesn't feel like they have to rampage through the streets destroying property and putting pedestrians alive. Fast and Furious knows that you think it's cool for them to rampage through the streets. And so. They don't bother trying to apologize for it. Right. And Guardians of the Galaxy, as we've talked about at length in several different places, including here a couple episodes ago, loves to have you get off on the idea that they make a very conscious choice to just have fun killing people. What Indiana Jones is going to do is stack the deck in a way that it always kind of makes sense that Indiana Jones has to kill people. Does it, if you step back and think about it? No, probably not. But at least the movie knows it needs to make it so you don't have to think about it too much. Let's make them Nazis. Let's make sure that they they draw first. I mean, it's what movies have been doing since the silent days. Like, 
let's make sure that the let's put the guy in an impossible situation let's make sure the bad guy draws his gun first and then the good guy will be authorized to do what he needs to do mm-hmm. but what you don't do is have the good guy draw his gun first you never do that except for now you do and i think it's callous and too bad but we don't have to get into that today i guess yep uh what do you think about that bellic confrontation we're not so very different you and i <laughs> <The> classic speech <laughs> every villain speech in every movie ever i hate that speech i really hate that speech i, I like it in this movie just fine yeah. but I hate it when it shows up. And, Man, it's so old. Yeah, it should have been retired after Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, I mean, it was already old then. Uh, no, you should have. You can let Batman and the Joker do it once. Yeah, you can make it a movie that's all that. The Dark Knight is the premise of the movie is that the Joker only came into existence because of Batman. And that's a great premise. Right. But what you can't do is just add a little spice to your movie by having your villain give that speech. It's not spicy. No. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's like, what's it, what's an adequate comparison? It's like, it's like, it's like going through the, the drive through at McDonald's and them asking, it, them letting you know that they're going to put salt on the fries. Yeah. It's like. Okay. Uh-huh. Thanks. And that's somehow more interesting. Well, and what you imagine is these screenwriters when they come, when they come to that moment that you, f- you could feel them like grab the salt shaker and start. <laughs> Yeah, people are gonna love these fries. Yeah, so like no, they're they're fries. They're fries. That's it's salt. Of course, the bad guy and good guy are a reflection of each other. That's duh. Socrates knew that. You know, um, yeah, Aristotle knew that. Yeah, let's let's. What would be interesting is if they weren't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what would be revelatory is if that just wasn't the case. It just wants. Let's have the bad guy give a speech like. We're really different. Yeah. <laughs> like you're good, and I'm really bad. <laughs> I mean, has that ever happened? I don't think anybody's ever taken the trouble, even in, in these metatextual postmodern days. I don't think anybody's ever subverted that trope. It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. That's a. It's a nice. It's a nice version of that scene. Yeah. And then we're gonna get the poison date scene, where we burn through some exposition with the poison date. Bella, uh, Sola says the line bad date which I've been able to use in my dating life uh, well now I'm married so I can't use it it's had to be retired but it's always a fun line to say when someone's yeah. been on a bad date and then we get the map room scene which is awesome which is awesome and I'm sorry a lot of this podcast thanks because is... John Wo- thanks John Williams for making the map room scene awesome yeah man and the close up shots the upward shot you know close up on Indy's face mm-hmm. well and have him dressed in that white attire goes a long way and uh, i think that's a i think lawrence of arabia is spielberg's favorite movie and that's a that's a nod there's there's a famous scene where lawrence stands on a train or something and there's this quasi-religious music as the people rally around him this messianic kind of thing yeah man that scene's great i don't know what else to say about it except for it's one of those touchstones like if i'm cleaning in a place that has a lot of dust i always think about that scene get your little hand broom out and yeah and again, even that is really silly mm-hmm. because what the Nazis have already used the map room guys yeah. to find what they think is the location of the well of souls. They, that whole thing is going to have been made immaculate. Like there will be no dust on any part of that thing because they've got a million workers and slaves and the job is get this ready so we can figure out where the thing is. But the movie doesn't care because the movie knows how to make this really mystical and suspenseful and 
fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, you're cutting to arguably one of the weaker parts of the movie, although it has some virtues. The the adult scene between yeah, Marion, Marion and, and Belloc in the tent. Yeah. It's a nice scene. I think it just doesn't really belong in this movie. It takes kind of all the adult sex politics stuff that too far. That doesn't happen yet, though, does it? Yeah, I guess it's actually when Indy's digging for the Well of Souls. Yeah, yeah. then he he he's close. He's going to go dig for the Well of Souls, and that's when he finds her. Right, he finds her. He puts the gag back he's, in her mouth. Yeah, he's already done the map room. Yeah, he fi- finds her, puts the gag back in her mouth, and then they're going to dig because he can't compromise. Right. <laughs> I can't rescue you from these evil people because... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a pretty blatant. That, that's like a J.J. Abrams. Here's the plot point. <laughs> Which you're, you could do. You just can't make... You can't always do it. You The problem with J.J. Abrams is every one of his plot points is like that. Yeah. You're allowed one per movie. Okay, but then, yeah, then they come back to the back and forth. And it's like every Indiana Jones movie has to have this scene that kids just tune out of i think like i remember being bored by this there's a scene in temple of doom where they're trying to decide whether to sleep together that kids i don't think like yeah and then there's all across the hall rooms across the hall scene and then there's the elsa indie dad stuff that it's fortunately short enough that it goes over most kids yeah but you still have to put up with the ah venice scene yeah i was like i don't know the well, it was just a misconception of theirs. Like, I think Lucas has always wanted this to be his James Bond, and Indiana Jones just actually doesn't really fit that that archetype very well. So now we have to have Marion get undressed and get into her dress and have this sexual tension, and she's going to drink Belloc under the table and pull her knife on him. Nice that we, again, set up payoff. We saw her drink somebody under the table earlier. Yeah. It's now, it now becomes a suspense plot point, which is now good. Now it's something we know that she can do. And yeah. And, you know, the knife is there. And and then, our, you know, as she's about to make her escape again, she's same scene even callback, right? Like the drinking under the table, the somebody under the table cuts to the Nazi. The same guy. Coming in. Mm-hmm. And then now she's drinking Bellic under the table and he's going to come and foil you know, her plan, but the Nazi is going to come and bust out his torture device. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Nope. Coat hanger. Well, and so John Williams, I don't even always like his, his comedy scoring, like in a home alone or something. When he's, a, when he has to score comedy comedy, it's like, do you really want John Williams? Cause he'll be like, wah, wah, wah. like, you know, he'll, right. he'll try and he's John Williams. What's he supposed to do? He tries to score every joke. And a lot of times that's kind of antithetical to comedy. But for something like this, it really works because he scores that as menacingly as he possibly can. And then he just kind of gently slides out of it as it yeah. becomes a coat hanger. And the best thing I'll say about that whole scene is this. Well, A, the punchline with the coat hanger is great. But B, I think you can just tell Spielberg, I think he's being indulgent there because he likes his actors. He likes Karen Allen. He likes the guy that's playing Bellick. I forget what his Paul Freeman, I think is his name. And they've obviously- He's great. Yeah. Bellick is great. He's great. And it's nice to give him- some time, some and time, and something and, to do, and a little bit of sympathy, even like he's he may be a callous. He's not actually malicious, like the, the Nazi torture guy is. Kill Indy a couple of different times. Yeah, okay, he's, he's but it, but he's he considers himself to be a man of the world to be. Yeah, he's just a pragmatist, but he's you know everything he does is in the interest of he's a, he's actually a believer. Like he thinks that everything he's doing. He, he like Indy, they're not so different, the two of them. Mm-hmm. They break the rules. They both kill people. Mm-hmm. They both have their ideals. He's just willing to use the Nazis to further his ideals, but he's going to like, he's going to take the Ark out into the desert and, and put on 
Aaron's priestly garments and try to do a be as he sees it completely respectful of the ark mm-hmm. and you get that like they do a lot to well he's going to have to actually make indiana jones put the rocket launcher down and so yeah on a plot level it has to work like he has to be able to make a convincing case he has to believe it mm-hmm. and he has to be able to sell it and they do a good job with that yep he's really good and i love that we have three different flavors of villains we have the guy who's just a sadistic evil nazi and then we have the guy that's more of just a not a bureaucrat but pragmatic he's just a nazi he's just a soldier yeah he's just he wants to make sure that hitler's impressed he's he's a nazi so he's a bad guy but he's not he's not using the war to as an excuse for his own innate sadism like the other guy is Mm -hmm. and then you have belloc who's a pragmatist in the service of a cause that he believes in yeah and okay so yeah then we get uh they get the arc out you want to watch out for the famous flubs that I'm sure a lot of people are already know about. You can see some glass between Indy and the big cobra there. There's a strike of lightning, and you can see Harrison Ford's reflection. I guess that's the flub. The other fun thing to look out for is R2-D2. Bouncing rocks. There's a bouncing rock. When, he, when they get out, he shoves that rock, and you just watch the shadow as the stupid boulder bounce, bounce, bounces right before they go down to the airfield. Watch out for C-3PO and R2-D2 in the hieroglyphics. hieroglyphics. And then it's exactly like Orson Welles' Mr. Wu thing. The Ark doesn't have to do anything when we get to it. We've already spent half of the movie telling you how important it is. All we do is we throw in a little humming sound and a little glowing. Mm -hmm. John Williams hits hits that score and it tells you everything you need to know. And it feels scary and mystical and you don't really know why. That's because they've done their work. And then we get the Well of the Souls. We just get, you know, another setup of now it's, you know, he's going to get trapped down there and with Marion and snakes are scary. Mm-hmm. Going to bust our way out and have scary corpses and skeletons. And it's just another, it, it, I guess if anything, you want to see it as a setup for the final scene, mm-hmm. right? Like you've got a, uh, all of these snakes surrounding the Ark of the Covenant and all these corpses, and he's going to find a way to bust through it all and come out into the light. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit of a setup for that sort of thing and in introducing you to the idea that not only we're we going to have fun action set pieces, but we're going to have some fun sort of horror set pieces too. Yeah. And so. Yeah. That's an important element of why these movies work is that they're not just straight ahead action and they generally don't deal in action climaxes um, like for their final climax, which is. I really think part of the appeal. Like I said, I think on our last episode about Indiana Jones, this movie just has Indiana Jones duke it out with Belloc on a bridge like Temple of Doom. It's not nearly as powerful as yeah. any that they have. I think maybe one other thing that might be worth saying. Uh, let me see if there's a good way to talk about this. 11-year-old boys find it doesn't really take much for them. You know, like, I have a wife now and I've seen lots of things in my life, but you know, when I was a kid and you, you're going to have her in this dress and then you're going to have the dress slowly get removed and things like that. I mean, there's not really anything all that, that that you would stop and say, Ooh, that was provocative or sexualized. But I just thought maybe it was worth reminding parents who might remember these movies as being fun and want to watch them with their kids that, and he's ripping off part of her dress to make a torch. Yeah. And that was enough to make 11-year-old Nathan kind of excited. 
Take that for what it's worth. Do with that information what you will. Yeah. Um, I don't feel bad watching it now, honestly, but I think it's kind of instructive to remember. We get the the airfield fight. Yep. The most pulp adventure kind of, we're just going to punch each other. We got that bald Nazi out there who's lived for this moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I said this on our last Raiders yeah. of the Lost Ark review, but I've always felt bad for this guy. He's clearly not in it because he hates the Jews or anything. He just likes having fights with people. Like he was. He looks like uh, he's out of some like boxing advertisement or something like that. Yeah. Like the Hitler youth uh, got this guy when he was young and pulled him in and he's always been tall. And like, I just have this whole backstory in my head where he's just a lovable. He probably has a rabbit, calls him George. (laughs) And he's just like, you know, this is the thing that I live for is to, and he's like going to gesture to indiana jones to get back up he doesn't want the fight to be unfair but old indiana jones is gonna outsmart him and let that propeller just indiana what's he supposed to do warn him he ducks for cover that's what the guy would do for him i think you think so the guy knocked him over and then was like you should get back up like Mm. we're gonna have a fair fight and (laughs) (laughs) defeat each other i i I really think it's unfair the way indiana jones well there's no fair way for indy to win that fight yeah, I mean, it's the perfect example of Indiana Jones and what he does. He uses his wits. But that's also one of those scenes that, like, you don't actually see anything. And yet, in my childhood, it was, like, the famous violent. Aside from the heads exploding and the hearts getting ripped out, that was the scene that, that was, like, the, the reference point for how violent those movies. A guy's head gets hit in a propeller, man. Like, we talk about it on the playground. Oh, that had more pow- power or potency for you than it did for me. As a kid. The propeller thing. Yeah. I think I remember, it was one of those things, you know how sometimes you fill these things in with detail. Like I, I remembered that they showed it. Like the fact oh. that you don't see anything. It's it, just not what you remember. Yeah. Or not. Yeah. And I think maybe my parents fast forwarded it when we were really little or something like that, which gave it maybe a mystique that it didn't quite deserve. Can, I can't remember. Did you ever go to Universal Studios or anything? Is no, it, I've okay. never been. I can't. I, I, we saw they had this like Raiders sort of like theater thing where they basically did the action set pieces. Mm -hmm. They did the boulder and they did the plane and they did um, some other stuff with like explosions and stuff on a great big soundstage area. And I, I always think about that. One of those stunt fights where they have just just stunt fights. They just, they did that. That'd be cool. I guess we're getting to the most iconic scene from the movie or one of the movies full of iconic scenes. It's actually not the most iconic scene from the movie. Yeah. But the truck chase is, First, we have to just acknowledge openly something that I think we've acknowledged in a couple of different points, but we have to have this moment where, okay, they're going to get on the plane. Oh, the plane's gone. Oh, the trucks are gone. Well, Indy, how are you going to catch them? Mm -hmm. I'll figure something out. And then boom, Indy on a horse, not just any horse. Yeah, a white horse. A white horse. Well, in that fedora. And so we, we said this movie was one big wink and it didn't have many winks. There's a mini wink. There's like yeah. a, hey, we're doing an action movie about a hero. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun <laughs> and cool. He, he's on a white horse, yeah. guys. Yeah, and he's going to track down a sacred relic from the Nazis. Like, it's that moment. I'm just going to tell folks, I don't really want to stop recording right now. It's raining outside. If a little rain gets We've in. We've had some thunder. We've had some thunder. So if you hear a little gentle rain, I don't think you will. But if you hear a little in your background, then. That's what's going on. That's what's going on. Yeah, he's going to burst out. But the movie's built to it. Like, if we're going to be a little meta, if we're going to be a little over the top, 
we've earned it. Like, yeah, we're, we're two thirds of the way through. Let's just lean into it now. Mm-hmm. You don't start by leaning into it. You get there. I talked about this on our aesthetics series that not everyone will have had access to. One thing that is true, at least of Western filmmaking, is that when you want the audience to feel comfortable and like the heroes are winning, you move the direction of the action from left to right. Uh, and everything moves from right to left. Right. because it's And it's because the Nazis are getting away with the arc. And so they're basically going the quote unquote wrong direction. Our minds, because of, you know, obvious reasons in Western culture, we want things to go from left to right, but the Nazis are going from right to left. And when Indiana Jones takes the truck back at the very end of the, of the chase, he is going to suddenly be going left to right. And he's going to go through that tunnel where they hide him. And that's going to be on the right side of the frame. Yep. Those are the kinds of choices that they just don't even bother to make sometimes in a modern movie, but it actually adds a lot. It's just that subtle psychological thing that somebody, people have thought about this stuff for a long time. Like they've figured this out about all the little things that work on you psychologically. It's feeding your brain like, oh, this is bad. This is wrong. They're getting away with it. Yeah. Yeah. And then when Indiana Jones gets control finally and turns it around, yay. It, It just adds to your feeling of elation. Yep. And I don't know that I have anything else to say about that scene that we haven't already said about set up and pay up off in geography, but it is a masterpiece of that. It's arguably the greatest action scene of all time. Yep. I mean, they try to live up to it with the tank chase in uh, Last Crusade. And the tank chase is awesome, but a tank is a cumbersome vehicle compared to these trucks and the... People climbing up and over and around and Indy following through and coming over the, you know using his whip and coming over the top. and Well, and in addition to, so we've been talking about setup and payoff and how these things are often a series of gags. There's also a sweep and a build to the story. Like this is its own mini movie. And so it starts with something really exciting, jumping from a horse onto a truck. And then it has to build up, build back up to that final climactic stunt where he slides under the truck. Yeah, And we're going to have things escalate and the bad guys are going to figure out more clever and more deadly things to come after him. And so there's just a lot of real thought that was put into how to build this sequence so that it has its own its own sweep and its own, own climax. And it's really smart and it's awesome. And then is there anything much to talk about before we get to the the final Power of God scene? Well, the boat. Yeah, there's the boat. There's some more stuff that kids will either be bored by or titillated by. Titillated by. I think as an adult, I like that scene a little bit better than some of the other quote-unquote sex scenes just because... It's not the years, honey. It's the mileage. That's a good line. That's a good line. There's a lot of good lines in the scene. And it's it's a pretty funny, not anti-hero in the sense that he's a bad hero, but against what usually happens to heroes that... He falls asleep. He falls asleep. Yeah. He doesn't... He's he's not James Bond. Yep. He doesn't get to claim his reward here. He's hurt. He's too tired. (laughs) And he doesn't even... You know, like she's real excited about her dress and everything. He doesn't care. Yeah. He's kind of starting to get into it there because how could you not? But he he actually the whole scene he just wants to go to bed. Yep. And in fact, the dumb blatant uh Lucas Lucasian slapstick of him just getting hit with the mirror <laughs> and and screaming with a w- wide exterior shot of the boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty. And then she says, "What'd you say?" Which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Apparently, we could hear this scream from way outside the boat. <laughs> that almost feels like we just didn't get good coverage of him 
getting hit or something like that and we just had to yeah to fix it i don't know and the nazis show up and then they take the girl and he hides and then he rides that whole submarine the whole boat cheers for him we get a little dun 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 yeah and i think they cut a big section of him on the submarine having to deal with you know hanging on and all that stuff i think they realized like we've we had our truck chase now we just need to get to the end as quickly as possible But even there, you're gonna in this whole section, you're gonna have my favorite grace note in the whole movie, just which is the yeah. the box the with the switch. Oh no, that that one. Oh, the, yeah, yeah. There's two. I always talk about the close switch. Yeah, yeah. Not just another great little. We're gonna give you more entertainment. Found pound for pound, he's gonna knock the Nazi out, and it's it's not gonna work. The jacket's too small. That's great. But then the other more powerful grace note is the the swastika on the box burning up yeah um does that actually happen earlier i think it's after he falls asleep yeah i just i just watched it this morning so okay all right we never get a break do we indy and then yeah the arc is still scary okay something's still happening but it's on the boat yeah you see the rat it's still on the boat yeah okay yeah yeah Yeah. yeah. i get it now i remember now yeah they just haven't bothered i think indy's actually in possession of the ark he just apparently hasn't bothered to take it out of the the nazi box at that point and then, yeah, they get there, and then he takes out the guy, and... The jacket's too small. The jacket's too small, and the guy comes up and is like, what, are you tired? Why are you sleeping? Wait, what's the, what are you tired? It's in German. Oh, right. There you go. Jake speaks German, folks. Something fun to watch out for if if you're a newer person to this movie. Bellic eats a fly during the... Yeah. <laughs> a fly crawls into his mouth, and apparently... Paul Freeman just went with it and didn't want to ruin the take. So he just ate a fly. The fly never came out. Yep. But you can watch I that. I always notice that. You can watch that fly crawl around. and I always notice that. It always creeps me out. Yeah. I mean, it It only helps the scene, but blow it up. Just put, I mean, I don't know what to say about that section, but it's a good section. Yeah. Um, gives a little humanity to Indiana Jones and to the bad guy, which is a kind of impressive feat to actually shade them in a little bit at the very end. Um, and do it in a way that feels credible to what's happened before. And then we have the coolest thing ever. I never, ever wanted to watch that scene. As a kid. As a kid. I never had, I, I mean, I was told to close my eyes or whatever, or had my eyes covered. But the first peek I got of it, I was just like, you know what? I'm just not going to watch this. This is too scary. Scary slash gross. Yeah. Like, I just never, to this day, I mean, that stuff, I just don't, I don't like it. I hope that it's not just bloodlust in my case. I'm sure at certain points in my life it has been. I really appreciate the, here's the only thing I'll say about it. I really like the craft that went into it back then. Like watching Palpatine get CGI blowed up by Ray and the new, like I I could care less about that. It's just stupid and kind of gross. But the fact that they had to build wax dummies and, have these guys pull the most ridiculous scream faces and build wax dummies that look like that. And then I think like for the commando guy, the they're just like, they just built a wax dummy and then they put hair dryers on it. No, that's actually for the torture. They put hair dryers yeah, on it and, and then it's, it. they, they, so they had to layer all that blood and stuff in yeah. and then they just melted it off and they sped it up, you know, filmed one frame per minute mm-hmm. or something like that. And so it becomes this really, great effect and then they they built like a plastic bellock and then like just things like the the angels that come out are women that they filmed dressed angelically in fish tanks 
so you got all the floating yeah. kind of garments and stuff and it gives this really ethereal look but, to it that's pretty fun um and then i don't know i guess you can talk what do you want to say about the power of god and i suppose we, we should we address that a lot on our other raiders of the lost ark yeah podcast. but this is the definitive raiders of the yeah, lost ark podcast so we need to deal with it what do i want to say about it i don't know what do you want to say about it i don't know i don't remember what we said about it earlier um I know that whatever we said about it, I don't feel as much tension now as I did then. So, Okay, there's a couple things to say about all of this. Number one, you should never forget. I don't know that we've actually said this in this the two things we've recorded this time on Indiana Jones. Steven Spielberg is a Jewish man. He was born in 46. So he would have grown up with his parents' generation having been in World War II and talking about it, it would have been very much on his radar. Nazism would have felt very real and very close to him. Mm-hmm. This is an angry young man's movie about... Taking out the Nazis. And not just about taking out the Nazis, but about the ultimate iconic Jewish power, the God of the Jews. Yeah, there's a way to view this in some ways as being almost accusatory. Mm-hmm. God, if you had you had the power, why didn't you use it? There is that aspect to it. But then there's also just the fantasy aspect of, yeah, man, what if God had just decided, like, the definitiveness with which these guys, I love the fact that all the minions get zapped, that there's a special punishment for each of the three main villains, main villains, and then the fire of God is going to sweep through, it's going to pick up the bodies, they're all just going to go flying into space, and then that the great punctuation of the lid flying up into the air and then slamming down. And it's shut and it's over. It's shut. It's over. You shouldn't have messed with this. You do not mess with this. This was not for you. Mm-hmm. Indiana Jones may be a fornicator and a murderer and anything <laughs> and everything else, but. He closed his eyes. He closed his eyes. <laughs> and the fire is going to even. Cut his, cut, burn cut his, his ropes. Cut, burn his ropes off because that's how thorough the justice that's happening is going to be. Yeah. And Indy's a stand in for all of us cynical Jews and. Christians alike, who we've given up on all this sort of religious hocus pocus. But at the end of the day, deep down, there's just enough of a real knowledge and fear of God that, you know, if it came to it, we'd close our eyes. There's knowledge, there's fear, and there's desire, I think, on Spielberg's part. Like, I would love to believe that there was a God that would just do stuff like this. I think that is where it ventures maybe into accusatory, like there wasn't. Yeah. But it's also, you know, if if Steven Spielberg is the ultimate purveyor of of wishes, I mean, if that's what he's made his he built his career showing us the things that we always wanted to see and never got to see. I mean, I think this is one of one of the ultimate moments along with what's what does a spaceship look like in close encounters and mm-hmm. What would it be like to make friends with an alien? I mean, I think this is the other one, which is what would it be like if the God of the Old Testament, as he would see it, or the God of the Only Testament, I guess. Was unleashed would, on uh, on the Nazis. On the greatest threat to his people in the 20th century and the most evil people. To walk the face of the to earth. To walk the face of the earth. It is ultimate good versus ultimate evil. So what else do I want to say about it? I mean, it does. it, it has power. A little Quentin Tarantino. Little you'll just wish fulfillment y. Well, in that case, if you want to compare it to Inglorious Bastards, that's an interesting comparison because what Quentin Tarantino wants to do is say the Jews just could have gotten their own revenge. And Spielberg 
yeah, okay, Indiana Jones can can get a little personal cathartic revenge as he chops these Nazis up and runs them over and all that. And I think Spielberg really enjoys that. Mm-hmm. Um, when Indiana Jones throws the guy out of the truck and then speeds up so that he can run that jerk yeah. over, like that's Spielberg saying, get that Nazi. Um, <laughs> for, for sure. <laughs> There's no other way to read that. Indiana Jones generally isn't that vicious or bloodthirsty, but he sure is at certain points. But Spielberg's telling a story where God has to show up and get revenge at the end of the day. Yep. Like Indiana Jones isn't going to- Or justice. Or justice. Yeah. And the line there with Spielberg is pretty blurry. But it actually feels like justice. Like these guys broke the law. They looked into the thing where they weren't supposed to look. It's not just that they're they're Nazis. It's not just that they're other. It's that- they did the they're thing. They're profane. They're profane. They did the thing that they shouldn't do. There is in all of this, if people have listened to our Guardians yeah. episode, there is a lot of just the same mindset of us versus them mm-hmm. throughout this whole thing. You're just Team Indy. It doesn't matter if it's the Aborigines or the random marketplace Arab stereotype characters or the Nazis. Yeah. It is us versus them. And the rightness of the cause isn't, is only established by we know Nazis are evil and we mm-hmm. know that the Arabs in the marketplace and the natives in the jungle are inferior. Yeah, this movie is xenophobic, no question about it. I'm surprised it hasn't gotten more reappraised in modern political correct. I mean, it's just too, too much fun for anybody to want to mess too, with. It's too much fun. And it's at the end of the day made by a Jew who's ultimately out after the nazis yeah and that's hard to (laughs) that's hard to dismiss that's true yeah i mean the aryans get it worst of all for sure i don't know i mean we could have the discussion about whether it's ever okay to show the power of god on screen and i think we had that we had that discussion you could listen to our other what i kind of want to say maybe this is lame and wimpy but what i kind of want to say is if you're gonna do it this is one of my favorite versions of it I don't like it when we hear God's voice, which you do in all kinds of movies. Including the Ten Commandments. Including the Ten Commandments. I don't like it when we see actual depictions of his face or his being or anything like this. Yeah. To just see- I'm more comfortable with this than I am uh, uh, comfortable with uh, like what's the the Chosen or any of the movies that have Jesus. Mm -hmm. Even something like Prince of Egypt or Ten Commandments, I'm more comfortable with this, honestly, because we don't have to hear an actor try to pretend to be- the voice of God or the voice of the burning bush or anything like that. And even if you want to make space for being able to do that, it just, it just sucks to have to see like people's choices, you know, in the 1950s, the voice of God is going to be this deep baritone radio announcer voice and the mm-hmm. Prince of Egypt. It's going to be this weird effeminate kind of, and it's just like, there's, yeah. there's no way to win. The place, if you're going to quibble with the depiction, it's that in order to capture the, the fearfulness of this, we have to basically go horror. We have to go ugly. Holiness isn't ugly. Right. Holiness is beautiful and terrifying, more deadly. Yeah. And there's, there wasn't, they didn't even try to go that route. No, the fact is, if you're going to try and depict it, you don't need the angel to come out, look all angelic, and, and then, then turn into a demon into a face. Grim, re- re- Grim Reaper demon face. What yeah. you actually need is for the angel to look angelic and for them all to be terrified of, of that. And just die. And just die. That being said, once again, if you're going to do it, this is pretty cool. And and going straight to that sort of violin screeching horror theme is right, pretty cool. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just a, his psycho rip. I will say it's probably worth noting, for better or worse, 
this scene is a touchstone for the way I think about the power of, you know, if I'm reading certain passages in Ezekiel or if I'm reading Old Testament stuff where these kinds of punishments are handed down, mm-hmm. Raiders of the Lost Ark always pops into my head. That's probably not a good thing, but just an observation worth making. You know, you can't you can't make pop art about this kind of stuff without it actually affecting the way that we, you know, just the same way that a whole generation thought of Jesus as the Passion of the Christ guy or whichever one you happen to grow up with, the paintings that are on the walls of churches, you know. The Raiders of the Lost Ark has done a lot to influence the way I think about Old Testament, quote unquote, justice. So then we have the final little scene. And it's interesting to note that they had not, that actually the last scene with Marion as originally conceived would be the scene with them hugging as their their robes have been cut. They they had to go back and shoot the scene. On the steps. Yeah. You can see how the original movie was supposed to end. It was supposed to end with a with the the guy the guy was supposed to say, Top men and then we were supposed to hard cut to a guy nailing the mm-hmm. thing into the crate. But instead they decided to get emotional closure and put a little damper on their little joke there, which is probably the right move. But that, that final punchline is great. It's the fact that this sacred object is, I mean, it's in a great big warehouse. Um, it's dumb to even explain it to Yeah, everybody knows the punchline of Raiders of the Lost Ark, but yep, it's wonderful. And then Kingdom of the Crystal Skull tries to, oh, boo. Actually, it's Area 451 or Area 51, and we're going to be there. And what a fundamental Kingdom of the Crystal Skull just fundamentally misunderstands so many things about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Guess what? Marion was never the great love of his life. And nobody's invested in that and nobody cares and nobody's invested in what happened to the Ark. And that's not a funny in joke. And uh, guys, we'll deal with it when we come back to yeah. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. All right. Final thoughts. Raiders of the Lost Ark. What a great movie. This is really, it is great. You want to make, I mean, how do you incorporate into its greatness? The various criticisms, especially the moral criticisms that we've had. It's too bad. It's too bad. It is almost the perfect kids movie. And there's a lot that you got to be willing to take. Yeah. And that sucks. I mean, the, the Last Crusade actually is the perfect kids movie, but then it's got... Still has some stuff. Some stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I like the movie. I don't think it's like a movie that I feel like I need to not watch because of the bad things that it has, but your mileage may vary on that. It is... It is not the years. It is the mileage. It is the mileage. That's absolutely right. It is a perfectly constructed piece of pop entertainment. I mean, it just doesn't get any better. And George Lucas and Steven Spielberg are geniuses. And they knew how to manipulate 20th century iconography, just like it's so smart what they did. Yep. Putting the Nazis. I mean, here's a fun fact. Did you know that the Nazis weren't occult collectors? That Hitler, and I know you can find all kind of books in the New Age section of your bookstore about Nazism and the occult, but it's not really a thing. Really? Pretty sure. Maybe I'm wrong about that, folks. Oh. I uh, thought that they actually, I thought Hitler did have an obsession with the occult and was invested in like trying to find like the grail and stuff like that. Well, okay. I'm scrolling through Wikipedia right now. Let's just say if there are, there may be connections, but they're a lot murkier than yeah. Hitler never had anybody actually look for the, the Holy Grail the or anything like that. Okay. Um, I accept that. But it's fun. Any other thoughts about anything in Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jake? It's really great. So great. All right, folks. We'll be back with Temple of Doom 
Arguably not as great. Arguably not as great, although maybe more interesting because it's got less uh it's less familiar. Yeah, I think I'm gonna try and make some space for it. But I don't know. Every time I watch that thing, I'm like, this is interesting and uh, also uh, uh, nice try. Uh, I'm glad you're doing something different. I I will try and make some space for what even, it's trying to do. Even some of the action stuff is like Bond bad. Like infl- we're going to jump out of this plane on an inflatable. I hate that. And that, that actually. That we're going to then go skiing down the mountain on. That's one of the things that they cut from Raiders of the Lost Ark. That was one of the ideas that they came up with when they were breaking the whole thing. That, the minecar chase, stuff like that was all part of Raiders of the Lost I Ark. I like the minecar chase. Yeah, the minecar chase is awesome. Would have been too much for Raiders of the Lost Ark, obviously. Yeah. But that raft thing does just feel like, not just James Bond, but Roger Moore James Bond. Right. It's ridiculous and, and it just breaks the reality of the movie. Yeah. Maybe that is actually one other thing to say about Raiders of the Lost Ark. This action, as ridiculous as it is, all exists somewhere within the realm of physics and what the human body can do and sustain. And that's part of what's cool about it is... This might be the last hero that we talk about that actually occupies that space yeah. in our in our hero's journey yeah. thing yeah. that we're doing. It's not that Indiana Jones... Like, the probability of anybody having this many things happen that they survive is ridiculous. But the probability of Indiana Jones accidentally getting lucky and surviving any one thing... That's fairly... It's fairly, it's okay. you know, it's like somebody could run from a boulder. People have run from big objects and gotten, you know, yep. there's, there's nothing that really breaks reality until we get to that raft and until we get to a lot of the ridiculous things that they do in that fourth one. Yeah. So I think it's something that. Ant Hills. Ant Hills. The part where Mary, I probably don't even remember this, but she drives over the cliff and then their truck like hits a tree and the tree bounces down. It's just like complete Looney Tunes. Oh, wow. It's like. Peter uh, Spielberg was like, I saw the ridiculous things that Peter Jackson did in the Hobbit movies, and I'm going to try and do even worse. I'm going to one-up you. <laughs> one-up you. One-down you. All right, folks, we'll be back. Thanks for joining us. This show is produced by me, executive produced by Jake and me. And go to patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies. Why might they want to do that, Jake? Because behind... The magical wall of bonus content, you will find access to our review of Clone Wars mm-hmm. in depth. And also, is that where we're doing our reading of uh, Duel of the Fates? Yeah, Duel man. Duel of the Fates, the screenplay by Colin Trevorrow. We are reading the entire screenplay. It's like a movie length. I think we're, we're going to be divided it into two parts, but. Yeah, and then we'll give uh, our thoughts on it, having thoroughly gone through it. Now, we're this is like every, it's a first time read through for us. So. Mm-hmm. It's not like we're bringing a whole lot to, you know, the parts as we read it, but we're just just reading it fresh. But yeah, you get our reading and then you'll get our take. And so, yeah, lots of stuff like that. Find uh, there for anybody who who supports us at, uh, I think, $5 a month or more. Yeah, you can can get more stuff by supporting us for more money. And you uh, push us closer to... Uh, being able to continue our superhero's journey. So we've now unlocked Indiana Jones. We're going to work through Indiana Jones. But what's next after Indiana Jones are the Richard Donner, Christopher Reeve, Superman movies juxtaposed against the Tim Burton, Batman movies as we see the development of the hero in modern American culture. Oh, man, I'm looking forward to that. Those movies are going to be so much fun to talk about. They are so imperfect and so interesting. 
and so have such great virtues and such annoying vices, maybe the original Richard Donner Superman is just a stone-cold classic with no problems. I have my doubts about that, but I haven't seen it since I was a kid. When it comes to Superman 2, we're going to have to make a decision. I think we might have to do both. Maybe one of them will have to go behind the magical content wall, but... I feel like the Donner Cut's the one that we want. The Donner Cut is, but I don't know if we're going to talk about it. You can't, talk about the theatrical. you can't avoid the Lester Cut because it is what people... It's just what we both grew up with. Right. When I think about Christopher Reeve's Superman, I think the thing I remember the most actually is Superman 2, the Richard Lester Cut. Like that movie was on TV all the time and mm-hmm. the Zod fight and the bar fight and him losing his powers and stuff. Like, yep. I know all those beats a lot better than I know the original stuff. Uh, there's one other thing that I have to do here, Jake, before we can go. What's that? Jake, did you realize we had a tier where we choose a tier of Patreon support where we choose one Patreon every podcast and talk about how awesome they are? One patron? One no, patron. I, I did not realize that. Yeah, neither did I, but we do. Okay. So let's talk about how awesome Jacqueline is. Jacqueline's kind of the best. I, I mean... Beautiful, smart, cool. Probably one of the most culturally savvy and uh, hip people named Jacqueline in the entire universe. Mm-hmm. Maybe the. I mean, can you think of any other Jacqueline's that come close? Not really, no. What Indiana Jones is to archaeology... Jacqueline is to Jacqueline. To, yeah, exactly. She's the best. Best Jacqueline of all Jacquelines. Yep. We love you, Jacqueline. Yeah. Thanks for supporting us. Thank you. All right. Until next time. <laughs> it's not the years, honey. It's the mileage. <laughs>